Hi, everyone. Welcome to my podcast, Crow Reads, hosted in partnership with Read Alberta. Crow Reads is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. My name is Rayanne Haynes, and I'm a published author and cultural producer. In this podcast, I interview intersectional writers, publishers, agents, and editors with a focus on Alberta creatives, all with a lens to discover more about their work and their lived experiences. Though this podcast comes to you from a virtual setting, I want to acknowledge it is recorded on Treaty 6 territory, the ancestral and traditional territory of the Cree, Diné, Blackfoot, Soto, Nakota Sioux, as well as the Inuit and Métis people. I want to thank you all for joining my guests and I and for being a part of the conversation. Margaret McPherson has worked as a full-time professional writer, teacher, and editorial educational mentor for the last three decades. With a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from UBC, she published widely in newspapers and magazines both nationally and internationally before moving to Alberta in 1994. After a career in journalism and teaching took her to the East Coast and Bermuda, Margaret began working in long narrative prose. She has subsequently published eight books, both fiction and nonfiction, including biography, uh, Nellie McClung, Voices for the Voiceless, which won the Canadian Authors Association Exporting Alberta Award. Her collection of short stories, Perilous Departures from 2004, and her first novel, Released in 2007, were both shortlisted for the Manitoba Book Awards and the Relit Award, and her last novel, Body Trade, won the De Beers Northwood Prize to th in 2012. Tracking the Caribou Queen is Margaret's first creative nonfiction memoir, and she is currently shopping a short story collection and working on a poetry manuscript. So welcome, Margaret. I am so thrilled that you're joining me today to talk about this book. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Rayanne. Yeah. Um, so we are going to talk about Tracking the Car Caribou Queen, and I just want to set it up for the people that are listening. So it is a memoir about uh, your formative years in Yellowknife in the 60s and 70s. And in the memoir, McPherson considers her own white privilege, her multitude of unexamined microaggressions, and how her childhood was shaped by the colonialism and systemic racism that continues today. McPherson's father, first a principal and later a federal government administrator, oversaw education in the Northwest Territories, including the high school Margaret attended with its attached hostel, a residential facility mostly housing Indigenous children. The memoir invites white readers to examine their own personal histories in order to begin to write relations with the Indigenous peoples on whose land they live. The back jacket reads... Here, McPherson is not striving for a tidy ideal of reconciliation. What she is working towards is much messier, more complex and ambivalent, and ultimately more equitable. And I have to say that I absolutely felt that as I was reading the book, that you weren't trying to wrap things up in a pretty bow for anybody, which of course is never what we're actually looking for or what she, we should be um, striving to do. So I thought that I might open this by um, asking you about how the book came into being. So, um, you know, we have many friends of, of similar friends within the Alberta writing community. And um, I had heard that you first began writing this book as a fiction manuscript, but then you shifted to memoir. And so I kind of have this as a two-part question. The first being was the reason for for that decision. And then the second is why write the book now? Ooh, yeah, messy. They say yeah. messy. Yeah. Um, and I think the answer to, well, let's just start with part one. Um, I did shift. I did shift from a novel to a memoir. Uh, and I think the, the simplest answer is to say it was due to uh, a, a kind of personal awakening. Mm. I remember when my last book came out, Body Trade in 2012, I went to a book club in a pretty Tony neighborhood in Toronto. And one of the women who was at the book club said to me that she found Rosie, one of the main characters and a Métis person. She said she was more Indian than any Indian I've ever met. And I remember being really shocked by that comment until 
The host of the book club explained that the woman was herself indigenous. And what she took exception to was the elevated language I used to portray Rosie. Mm. It was a stereotype, more on the side of the noble knowledge keeper, but it was a stereotype nonetheless. The woman, this woman had the courage to call me out on creating a character and giving her all those attributes of sort of the super spiritual creator, creator connected, intuitive mm. person, rather than the sort of well-rounded character that is a human being. So a sort of overcorrection on my part, but equally damning in that it is a white person's trope that perpetuates a false notion of indigeneity. And after a lot of thought, I realized that that was true. Mm -hmm. So meanwhile, I was creating this other book, Caribou Queen. Yes, it was a novel. And I realized I was veering into that same territory. I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to speak for other people. And even though, yes, I grew up among Indigenous people, I had no right to assume their voices. Mm -hmm. So I made a really tough choice when that that novel was 325 pages, I think, I decided that I would toss out every part of that book that I'd fictionalize. About mm -hmm. two thirds of the book went into file 13. And I was left because the book was about grief and about childhood and about indigeneity on some level. I was left with the bits of the book that I felt in my bones were important because they were the pieces of the story that hadn't been explored. So I, I decided that I could use those bits, what was left over that third of the book that was based on my own childhood, as the, the bones of a memoir, allowing me to tell my story from this very restricted lens through which I could view my particular world. My world was populated with friends and acquaintances. Some of them were Indigenous, a lot were not. But the memoir is through the eyes of my younger self. Mm -hmm. So it's a white child prota protagonist. It is not usurping or appropriating the voice of anybody else. And it's the only way that Caribou Queen can be told. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, the book is about white privilege. It's about entitlement. And it's about the dawning of the child's understanding of those things as she grows. So appropriation is the answer. Mm -hmm. I, I recognize that I just could not do that. I, I made the mistake once. I couldn't do it again. I kept it very, very tightly to, to the lens of, of the younger self through my perceptions. And it only worked, I mean, it's probably closer to autofiction than it is memoir, mm. but it it's, you know, it's dubbed mem memoir. Yeah. Um, your question of why now, I mean, that is a really good question because I sometimes regret um, the fact that I published this book. I mean, race relations is not, not an easy conversation to have. Mm. It's, um, it's, you know, it's from my perspective. Do people need another book from a white person's perspective when they really need to hear Indigenous voices? And I guess if I'm really honest, I would say that um, I'd invested so much time in sort of conceiving first the novel and then reconstructing it as a memoir that I realized that I was sitting with something that was really true to me. And I felt I was invested in that reality and I, I knew that it wasn't pretty. I knew that what I was writing did not reflect that well on me, but it was a, a personal truth that I had to sort of own up to and I had to own. Um, so I started reaching way, way back into childhood memories. And, you know, on that shelf of memories were a lot of things that revealed themselves to me as I kept on writing. So I started assembling a series of vignettes and those vignettes became as as I started to explore them and I started to explore what it meant to me 
to be the white person. And I started to see those microaggressions. I started to see that I had something here that was, it was a memoir, but it was looking at um, the idea, it was looking at what it was to be a white person in a certain time and place. Yeah. And ultimately I decided that I didn't really know how to write a memoir, but I decided that I could stitch these memories together and I could form something that would show, I hope reveal to, to readers what those times were like and how I was so unaware of my own privilege. Um, I did think a lot about taking up space in the publishing world, um, but I thought that Caribou Queen was justified as a publishing project because it offered this different perspective and because there were just so many people, white people, so many that I met who were looking for a way forward, looking for the answers of what it means to be a true ally. And personally, I believe that being a true ally starts with admitting that you're part of the problem. And that's right. what was being revealed to me as I was compiling these memories, that I, I am part of the problem. And until I could admit that, until I could really, really look at my own life, I, I, you know, I had to do that work before I could knit the, the narratives together and knit these vignettes together. Anyway, I submitted the memoir and New West picked it up. Yeah. I I insisted and they agreed that I should have an Indigenous editor and they were very generous, I have to say. They agreed to provide an Indigenous editor. They, um, they hired sensitivity readers. Their scrutiny of the text and the sensitivity of the manuscript was beyond reproach and their editorial... Uh, review of the work was rigorous and yeah. I think they recognized that this perspective from a white person on yet another white person was you know a little bit dangerous perhaps I hear that and I see that and I also think that there's bravery involved um or maybe not maybe bravery is the wrong word but I feel like there's a level of nuance that comes with writing um, uh, a memoir of, of this type that is asking other people, like you say, to also be able to look back and find their own, admit their own privilege and, and be comfortable with being in discomfort in order for those questions to continue to arise and those conversations to continue to happen so that we're not always asking um, the Indigenous writers or Indigenous people to, to constantly start those conversations well this is this is the thing if it is yeah. just the beginning of dialogue at least this book as I see it can be a springboard into those conversations mm -hmm. and you know it has it has worked I mean it worked I mean it has it has been the impetus of conversations when I read when I speak about it People are curious. Why put yourself on the line like that? Yeah. And, you know, thank you for the word bravery. I, I you know, I, I, I don't know. I do regret sometimes that I wrote it. I sometimes think, who the hell do I think I am? You know, that old uh, adage from Alice Monroe, who the hell do you think you are? But I did write it. And I did write it with this real desire to kind of come clean with myself now you know it, it does have to do with your with the idea of self-reflection and yeah. there was a bunch of stuff going on you know when I was writing Caribou Queen a lot of stuff in my own life a lot of stuff in Canada a lot of mm -hmm. you know the TRC was happening and you know it was underway in Edmonton when I was wrestling with some of these questions of appropriation. The whole country was starting to re-examine the fact that, hey, at our backbone, we have a genocide. Yeah. And what does that mean? And I mean, 
I really, really felt that I was going down to the Shaw Center. I was sitting as witness to the stories of lost childhood, the terrible loneliness and the abuse. And all the time I was echoing with the hostel mm -hmm. and, you know, with that, that school that was that residence that was so much a part of my own childhood. And this is in lived memory. This right. is my childhood. This is the sixties. You know, I went up to Yellowknife. I, I wasn't born there. I went up as a babe, basically, I think a two and a half year old. And so, well, you know, all this, the stuff was opening up. This is before they discovered the unmarked graves. This is just sort of the reckoning that we finally were coming to. I was, I was trying to understand my own role in that, in that cultural genocide, my own experiences, my own experience of being in Dene land and what I was doing there and what was being imposed. And it changed me. Like it changed mm. me. I I knew that as a writer, I was holding a lot of um, witness within my own heart. And because I am a writer, I knew that I would have to respond in some form. I mean, the other thing that was happening was there was the inquiry into murdered and missing indigenous women girls and two-spirited people mm. that was going on shortly afterwards and for me it all sort of culminated in a great sort of reckoning and a great outpouring of grief remorse shame you know all those things yeah. <laughs> that are are part of our our feeling as a as a, a colonizing nation but at the same time I I realized that a, that gut reaction of guilt and shame just wasn't enough. And I wasn't going, it wasn't going to make a pick of difference how I felt about it. So I knew I had to do something constructive with it. And I just decided to lay out my memories as, as they came. Mm -hmm. And I tried not to judge those memories, those, I call them my culpabilities. Uh, I tried not to editorialize too much in this text. Yeah. What I wanted to do was, as you suggested, invite the reader into my cave of mirrors mm. and ask them to sit there with me. And that's what I wanted from this book. They're, they're oh. my stories. Yeah. But my hope in some small way is that my stories can belong to all the privileged and enfranchised you know, Canadians who were young people in the 60s and 70s who were really blind the same way I was to the oppressive system that, you know, enabled us, but did so by disabling others. Yeah. And, you know, that that's, I mean, that sounds all very noble and but but it really was my motive because I was starting to really understand what what my how my childhood was shaped and how you know I didn't really come into this understanding until much later in my life. So you know it it's shocking really, but I don't think it's that uncommon. No, I don't think it's that uncommon either. And and certainly um living in Alberta, you know, reading reading your as as they are they are vignettes, which I I also love the structure of the book and how you allow those memories to just kind of form and, and grow into something. But certainly in Alberta, there's a lot of connections that I read uh, that you experienced up in the Northwest Territories. I could immediately, you know, as a woman who grew up in conservative rural Alberta uh, with that was racism rampant around my youth, uh, I felt a lot of really deep connections to a lot of those vignettes and those stories. And I mean, you bring so much nuance in and I'm, there's a couple of things that I just want to mention. So the idea of, um, when we when I read the back jacket uh, uh, from the book and it talks about the saying of the hostel attached to a resident school, and yet you had a memory in the book of a feeling of shock when your brother 
called it the residential school and how as a young woman you hadn't been able, you had not seen that you you didn't understand that and then you had to come to this uh, understanding or this acknowledgement of that's actually what it was is it was a residential school that your father was essentially the 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 principal of and and all of those layers um and then there's also another section in the book um where you write about the death of a woman named Sophie and how she she um her body was found frozen a very short distance from your home um and I might want to ask you if you can frame that vignette, that story for the readers um, and thinking about that and, and thinking about your brother calling, you know, actually naming the school what it was and how you began to bridge an understanding of racism and the othering in that community. Ooh, big, big topics. Yeah. Uh, my My brother's comment, and it was maybe 12, 15 years ago. I, I don't remember exactly. It, the The school, the residents, and it's so ironic because, I mean, I ended up working as a janitor there. I mean, I was in the building. It was, it was, you know, as a child, things are just, you just see them all the time and they're just part of your world. So the residence was always there. The school that I went to for um, grade 9, 10, 11, 12, uh, sorry, grade 10, 11, and 12 was, um, so this was a high school. So it was a, a lot of um, kids were educated in their communities, but um, they their community schools or settlement schools often only went to grade six or sometimes grade eight. So in grade nine, if they wanted to continue their education, they were flowing to a more urban center and an urban center in the Northwest Territories hmm. would be Yellowknife. So this is not sort of the typical image of the residential school at the turn of the century. You know, some of the the stories that that we read in textbooks, this was right. because it was part of my everyday life. I didn't it didn't dawn on me that it was the same thing, mm -hmm. but they weren't little children taken, you know, the Ken, right. Ken Monk, the, the children taken, pulled out of the arms of their mothers, like small five, six, 10 year olds, like, but it still was gathering um, various populations from up and down the Mackenzie Delta, up and down the Mackenzie River, all the way up to the Delta and the Western Arctic, often across the Eastern Arctic, all these little settlements and communities, they gathered all these kids from different cultural communities, often different linguistic groups, to a school that also included the town kids. And I was like one of the town kids. So it was right. basically... Um, a third Dene and a third Inuk or Inuvialuit and a third white kids or, but it, it's the way, the, what I found astonishing is that because it was just the school and the hostel, like it was just, it was just normal. It was just like, okay, the hostel, the hostel's there. I was, there's a scene written in the book where, my brother and I are collecting bees in a little jar and, you know, it's basically, it's a metaphor for all those kids being collected in that, mm -hmm. in that residence. And, but it didn't, you know, it, I mean, it does show, I guess, a certain amount of, um, uh, what's the word, sort of a certain amount of blindness yeah. on my part, but also, you know, the residential schools in, you know, in those days in the seventies, it wasn't, there wasn't the same understanding of the genocide. There wasn't the same, it wasn't this, there wasn't the same conversations going on. And for me, it was really, um, it was really quite shocking to think that that place where I went and mm. my dad, you know, was, you know, he was sort of, the big cheese there he it was 
I mean, there is a scene that's written in the book about the kids not being able to go home for Christmas. So the federal government for two years in a row was not able to send the students home. And I don't know why, probably finances, I don't know. But, you know, and I was very young, but also very aware that these kids were not going to go home for Christmas and they were not going to see their parents. And it was like heartbreaking to me. So I guess I was aware of my privilege. I remember grabbing my dad's hand as we walked home and knowing that I was getting something they weren't. Mm -hmm. And it was being with my family. So, you know, it's a knowing and a not knowing. And kids, especially when they're like, I was super sensitive and super like quiet when I was young. I don't know what happened to that. But (laughs) I, I, I just... I did, in some ways, I did know that it was off somehow, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know to name it as a residential school. It was like a residence that was connected to my high school. That's what it was to me. But when it was called a residential school, it sort of shifted, something shifted. And that was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Now, the story of Sophie football is, uh, it's a really hard one. Um, Sophie was the first violent death that I'd encountered. And again, as that child, I really, really could not understand her death. She froze to death. Uh, To be fair, I didn't really encounter the death. Personally, I just heard about it. And I remembered it the way, you know, those certain children who are exposed to rumor and half truth and mythologies they mull things over and over and over trying to make sense out of what they've heard well that was me I remember so well wondering how could it be that someone could die so close to warm houses it didn't make sense to me there was lots of misinformation on the streets I mean I don't really know And to be fair, my parents didn't talk to me about difficult things like a young woman dying on the streets. So I was left to wonder and speculate. And I've still not found the cause of Sophie's death, despite looking at records. Hmm. I have visited her grave in Lakeview Cemetery in Yellowknife. I have taken tobacco. Hmm. I have spoken to one of her great nieces from Bechico about her life. But I think the reason my memory of Sophie's death is so potent in this book is because it holds the emotional weight of all the other indigenous women and girls murdered before and after. And her death is again used as a mirror because the prevalent attitude of the culture of the times was whatever, you know, it's her own fault. Just another, you know, just another Indian just another statistic and for my younger self her death niggled and pierced my conscience but if I'm really honest which is what I am attempting to do in the telling these stories it's that I kind of also shrugged it off I hadn't thought about Sophie's death in years that early event her death when I was maybe 10 years old was and is heartbreaking and traumatic but ultimately Her death resulted in me taking on exactly those same attitudes Mm. displayed by the dominant culture, shirking responsibility, refusing to look at the root of the problem, street violence, alcoholism, or even the severity of elements, the severity of the elements in the territories and the lack of shelter for a young woman who could die alone in a snowbank. Like, think about that. It's a very hard look at the results of a colonial society where human lives are given different values. And if 4,200 middle-class white girls and women and two-spirited were discovered dead or went missing, would there not be an uproar? That's how many unsolved outstanding cases there are against indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited. And Sophie Football was just one of those 4,200 cases. And I mean, you know, she came back to me, she came back to me like, like a haunting because 
and now I have to read the a little bit from that because mm -hmm. it does show what I did and didn't know. And for the most part, I didn't know. Okay. But it shows how it affected me. And if if you'll permit me, I have a yes. very short reading about that. Yes, please. Years after the Gold Range encounter, when I was nine or ten, I saw the Caribou Queen late one Saturday morning. If it was her, and I can't be sure, she had changed. Both of us had changed, but I had not the insight to recognize my slippage from innocence to experience in those eight short years. This woman, and I'm talking about not Sophie, but the Caribou Queen, mm. this woman was a fixture in front of the post office, a brawling battle axe of a woman roaring with anger and drink. I ran into her around the same time it was said that she let go with her empty Molson X bottle and conked Sophie football over the head. Conked. It's a curious word, isn't it? It's a playful word sounding impulsive and non-injurious. The phrase cracked across the skull with a beer bottle sounds a lot more serious. A woman hits another woman across the head and I use the word conked. Is it because the woman who was hit didn't really matter to me? She was one of a parade of people characters they were called who populated the fringe the fringes of our hard rock town as kids we were always thrilled to see one of these characters ranging around the downtown in daylight hours it was considered a rare and wondrous thing to see jimmy the wind or crazy tom d in the new town at all but when the woman i knew as the caribou queen occupied the third aisle of rexall's drugs I thought I'd hit pay dirt. I was there and she was there. The caribou queen loud and belly laughing, opening all the cheerful cartoon cards, rummaging through the comic book, snorting with pleasure. I crouched near the dispensary and watched in horror and awe as scrawny Alice Thompson on her part-time weekend and after-school job suggested in her timid mouse voice, that the queen move along. Don't mess your shorts, bellowed the caribou queen, and she gave that rack a final whirl, whirly twirl before she marched out, comic books spinning and fluttering like bright butterflies in her wake. In that moment, my heart leapt with love for the caribou queen and her bravado. She was brave and bold, than my scrawny life. I'd heard that the first caribou queen got her name because she once butchered six caribou in one afternoon on the ice of Back Bay. Six caribou in one go. That was her claim to fame, that and the fact that she ruled street life. She was both feared and admired. Sophie Football, the young woman from Ray Edso, now Bechico, 70 kilometers east of Edmonton, was found dead shortly after I encountered the queen in the drugstore. Shortly after they said she conked Sophie with the beer bottle. I got my information from talk on the elementary school grounds Monday morning eavesdropping. I heard that two teenage trappers, teenage boys trapping Martins after church had noticed 12 ravens circling the Conmine road. That's where they found Sophie deep in a snowbank a stone's throw from our house. At first they thought she was sleeping it off, you know, one of the grade six boys said of the hunters. Then he put his fist to his mouth, tilted back his head, fake guzzling, as though she poured her own fate down her throat, as though she got what she deserved. My dad said it was just her face peeking out, said his companion. She was froze clean through froze solid. That following weekend, in the dimming afternoon after the lunch dishes were dried and put away, I asked my sister why Sophie didn't knock on our door. I remembered her rolling her eyes. Yeah, right, like dad would let her in to warm up in the middle of the night. Our dad would let her in. You have to let people in, especially if it's cold. Well, she didn't knock, did she? And that was that. 
When I imagine the Caribou Queen's record slaughter out there on Great Slave, those six caribou, I always picture snow and the color of anger, blood. But when Sophie Football was hit over the head and then found frozen to death steps from my warm bedroom, I saw her death as clean and neat and very, very white. Now that I have filled in the lines and colors of my own pencil sketch childhood, I know this isn't so. Sophie's death was dark and violent, and like far too many since, it remains unresolved. For me, Sophie Football was the first victim in what has become a horrific list of murdered and missing Indigenous women, an acronym we say by rote, MMIWG2S. Sophie's death, no matter how it came about, is heartbreaking. But at a very young age, I recognized the closed door of our family home and how it played a terrible part. Our closed door. All our closed doors. Half a century later, I recognize how little has changed. Mm. Part of tracking the Caribou Queen. Yeah, a, tough a one. reading. It's a really tough one, that. Yeah. So the the recalled conversation, the innuendo, innuendo, the rumor, the inability to find records. The only thing I could find was her 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 headstone. Yeah. So the book looks at many different forms of violence, um, and it's through your voice from you know a young woman of I think three to to teen years. Um, but it's almost as though this this violence was an expectation of life in the North. Um, you know, you look at the transientness of community and, and predatory behavior. Um, but there were also, in my reading, it seemed that there were there were layers of normality um, or or the hiding of white violence uh, versus or compared to indigenous violence. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you began to understand that as a young woman and as you were writing the manuscript. I think that there are many, many examples, um, some of them blatant, some of the more nuanced examples of violence in my book. Um, and they are, uh, the violence springs from you know, both sides of the community, the new town, the old town, the indigenous population, the white population. Um, I can think of the violence, if you will, um, perpetrated by random white people almost more than I can think of the violence um, that was perpetrated within the indigenous communities, mostly because I was, I was with I was part of that yeah. white community. But in the main, I don't think violence is predicated at all by race. I mm -hmm. think it may be predicated by poverty. And mm -hmm. for the most part in that town, particularly after the government arrived, there was certainly uh, uh, more wealth in the new town in the white population with the miners than there was in the uh, more traditional indigenous populations. Um, so while violence isn't predicated by race, but perhaps more by poverty, I still don't think any, I, do, I don't think one type of violence was more acceptable than the other. But I would say in the white communities, the violence was more hidden yeah, or clandestine. Yeah. Um, you know, you can think of examples of that young girl from who was assaulted by her father and she she was just sent away to have her baby in the South and she just disappeared. And, you know, she was she was being sexually abused by someone in her own family um and and there's lots and lots of examples uh, uh, in the book of you know it's not 
it's not a race. It's, it's sort of a violence. Now, you know, I think I was a little bit more, um, attuned to that being a woman, being a girl, wow. yeah. not a woman. My, my brothers, um, did, did not have that experience. Um, but you, you know, there's a scene about going to the movies and, you know, as a 12 year old and some man is his hands on my crotch. And yeah, I wrote that. Yeah. I, I have that in my notes about that. The, um, yeah. the guy molesting you. Yeah. But it was it in, you know, there was a sort of sense of street life with these indigenous people who lived more openly. I mm -hmm. saw, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't hidden the way it was, the violence that was, so I guess what I'm trying to say is the violence, the, the violence that, that I saw and experienced was not predicated by race. Right. And I think what I was felt like I was reading a lot in the book was that it felt like it was more accepted or normalized within the white communities and yet it was more um attacked uh within the like by the white communities towards the indigenous communities if that makes sense i'm thinking even specifically about the um the the one piece um called sun dogs where the elderly indigenous man uh, kind of weaves in to talk to you, but you've you've got the beads hidden, and then the the caretaker lady, or the lady that runs the store, you know, shoves him outside, and he falls yeah. into the into the snow, and and so it was almost like her act of violence was normalized as being okay, um, but yet it was somehow perpetrated that he was the one attempting to be violent to you, if that makes sense, or that was my reading of it. So it felt like there was many of those kinds of situations where it was almost that that was the, that was the lens that people were looking at life through in that community. Yes, to some degree. I mean, there, there was, again, there's some culpability on my part in that incident that happened at Weaver and DeVore. And I, I mean, that was not a hard memory to find because mm -hmm. it has plagued me for a lifetime, a lifetime. Yeah. I mean, I wrote bad poems about this for years um, because that man who was, yeah, he was totally thrown out of the building. He didn't really do anything wrong, but yeah. I, uh, they, you know, the white woman was protecting the white little girl. And, yeah. you know, I, I knew, I knew that he had done nothing wrong. And if anybody should be thrown out of the store, it should be me. Yeah, it, it is really, it's a complex, they're complex, Absolutely. Um, complex situations. But I see now what you're saying. You're saying that, um, the the indigenous population um was blamed or yeah. or suspect yeah it's a very it's very complex and i think part of what made the manuscript so um nuanced for me was some of those questions that it brought forward for me as a reader right to also look at that within my own experiences and my own um, background in my own um, history or, you know, history of bias and that kind of thing. So I think that there's a lot that people um, are able to take away from this manuscript within those kinds of framings, within those abilities to look back and start reflecting or doing our own self-examination. Um, and then to sit in that discomfort, like I said earlier, um, in order to kind of actively engage in truth and reconciliation and change, because conversation is never enough. Going back to what you said, what I said a bit earlier, I was hoping that I could offer my book as an invitation to this cave of mirrors. You know, mm -hmm. I love that idea. And I love that yeah. you think you could sit with it. Um, I, I want people to really reflect on their 
prejudices, on their stereotypes, their contemplation of the past and the present, their interactions with and around Indigenous people, race relations as a whole. Um, and I want, I do want people to realize that good people can be involved in a system that is itself not beneficial to all. It's not fair, not equitable, not just. But it's not until we recognize that that we can actually begin to change about change it. We can actually bring about change, change once we recognize it. I can't be part of any solution until I recognize that I am part of a problem. Yeah. And that's that's why I wrote Talking the Caribou Queen. I wrote it to kind of lay it out without judgment that I'll ask you to read uh, one more one more bit from the book as uh, as a way to close out our conversation and and before you do that I just want to say thank you again for talking with me I know that um, a conversation around this kind of book uh, like you said earlier around and and the fact that it delves into race, race relations can be um a more difficult conversation to have so I really appreciate your willingness to come on and 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 talk through the book with us. So uh, I'll leave it at that and I'll let you read uh, read something for us. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Rayanne. Um, I'm just going to read from towards the end. I'm going to set it up a little bit. Um, it's a very short final reading, but I think in some ways it encapsul encapsulates my hope for this book. Mm. Um, this is the moment um just before my friend Lawrence goes back to his home community just before I leave the north for the first time to go out to university um just uh just before I have a final encounter and an uh issue an apology to Carmel who's another very important character mm. in this book it's uh when Lawrence who's a Dene boy but also the subject of sort of my unrequited girlhood mm -hmm. crush we sleep together on the rocks uh, uh, a week or so before the summer solstice and the end of the school year and I think I can probably get through this uh but it's it's a it's a hard little bit to read because mm -hmm. it's um it's sort of the last time I saw him oh. it's called for now I've said there was no intimacy but that night Lawrence and I conspired to sleep side by side on the June warmed rocks of Jolliffe Island. Together, we witnessed the entire sky wrap around our eyes and very, very briefly a swaddling of ink with tiny typeface stars blinked their message of worlds beyond. Both of us knew it was the last time. We placed our borrowed mummy bags next to each other mine nearest the circle of stone that held the fire we burned down. We lay shoulder to shoulder on a bed of spruce boughs, recently separated from their mother trunks. They smelled of crushed resin and rosemary, but not quite that. Those boughs smelled like life, like Lawrence, and the sap from the boughs spilled stickiness on my bag, but I didn't care. Because with our faces to the sky and only the glowing coals to light our camp, that semi-transparent curtain of night came upon us softly, like no night at all. In the, trail, in the trailing twilight of sunset was a perfect sunrise. The two could not be separated. I lay breathless and astonished, watching the deepening colors of dusk, burnt umber and pink, ghostly green edging into somber shades of purple, becoming usurped by the yellows and oranges of dawn. I felt Lawrence's body against mine, sleeping bags between us, but it was enough to be there and to watch the movement of smoke and swirl amid the smells of spring while all around the dome of sky held the light and would not let it go. Silently and together, we watched the day end and begin mm. again.
Something about that last camp and that simultaneous sunset and sunrise made me know how puny we were, humans who lived mostly in great darkness. I saw the brevity of the light flares, their momentary joining, and like the two of us below entranced, I thought about the blacker latitudes of space where nothing could be known except what was left behind. Lawrence and I shared that night on Jolliffe Island, but we did not speak about what we had seen. Sleeping rough with the midnight sun as our nightlight, we closed our mouths, opened our eyes, and absorbed both dusk and dawn before sleep came, because it would, and mm. it did. We opened our eyes and closed our mouths and saw. So I think that line is maybe what I would like to think the the book um, illustrates is if we close our mouths and open our eyes to a community that has so much to offer and to give, I think we can really learn something about ourselves. And that certainly was my experience, continues to be my experience, and it's for what I am perpetually grateful thank you margaret um yeah a wonderful conversation uh i appreciate you making the time to speak with me um margaret is uh in my heart an edmontonian uh published by uh new west press an edmonton uh publisher she has left us she's now moved to a small a small community um what did you say? Two hours west of Ottawa, but in our hearts, you're always one of us. So I, I truly, I truly appreciate you making the time to be on the podcast with me and, and having this, this lovely conversation and, and sharing more of the book from everyone or for everybody. Well, thank you very much for having me because I too, you too, your audience, my community is, mm -hmm. is there. And I, I miss I miss that community very much, but I'm moving forward. So, you know, it's, it's all good. It's, all good. it's all good. It's all good. <laughs>